Friends, if we have not, had not had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Dan Min, and I have the great privilege and honor of serving as the pastor here at ACF. And uh, before we jump into things, I just, as, as I was worshiping with you all here this morning, I just felt led to, to just say thank you for, uh, if you call ACF, if you call this place your, your, your place of worship on a, on a weekly basis, you're here every Sunday worshiping with the body, uh, receiving God's word here and being fed and nourished, uh, I just, I don't take that lightly. Uh, I, I do truly feel a deep sense of gratitude uh, for those of you who call ACF your, your home church away from home. Uh, because that has been our desire from the very beginning. We want to create a space and a place where Penn State students far and wide can come together and worship Jesus as one body. And I know that in this room, we've got different campus ministries represented, but for, for about an hour on a Sunday morning, we don't come in the name of our campus ministry, but we come in the name of Jesus, under the banner of Jesus, and we make much of him. We lift him high, and, uh, and whenever we get to do that, I, I consider that a great honor and a joy. And so, uh, again, if you call ACF your home church, I, I thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a great privilege to, to pastor you and to open up God's word and, and uh, preach from it week in and week out. And so, um, with that said, today's message is going to be a little bit different. Um, uh, it, it, you'll, you'll see what I mean here. We're, we're actually continuing on in part two of our series, Spiritual Things, and, uh, and this is a series where we're talking about things of the supernatural realm. And uh, if you were here last week, we, we started off with, with uh, part one of the series where we laid down some groundwork for, for us to th begin thinking more supernaturally. Uh, I suggested that we as a people need to move from a naturalistic worldview to a supernatural worldview. And if you missed that message, you can listen to it on our website or on our podcast. But today... We're going to go into part two of this series, and I want to talk about an element of the supernatural realm that tends to generate quite a bit of confusion and perhaps even some significant questions. Today, I want to talk to you about the devil, demons, and demogorgons. That's the title of my message today, The Devil, Demons, and Demogorgons. Uh, obviously, this series is very loosely based on the show Stranger Things, and in the show Stranger Things, there are these hideous creatures called demogorgons uh, that essentially go around attacking people. They go around uh, attacking people, and, and they're, as the show progresses, there are a lot of questions as to, as to these demogorgons. For instance, what are they, <laughs> right? Um, where, where do they come from? What do they want with us? How do they interact with us humans? And ultimately, how the heck do we defeat them, right? Like that, those are the questions that the, the, the characters in the storyline are asking. How do we defeat these awful creatures? And in many ways, those are the kinds of questions that I think we have when it comes to the devil and demons. For instance, what is the devil? Where do demons come from? What do they want with us? How do they interact with us? And for the love of God, how, how do we defeat them? How do we overcome them? Now, immediately when I, when I mention the name the devil or demons, for some of us, again, coming off of last week's message, for some of us, we have an internal freak out flag that goes railing up, right? Like, 
I don't know that I like talking about the devil. And I, heck, I don't, I don't even like watching scary films, much less talk about the devil and demons. I'm not into that kind of stuff. In fact, maybe for some of us in the room, we've never even talked about that. Even for those of you who might have grown up in the church, you're like, we talked about Jesus a lot, but never about like the devil and demons. And the fact of the matter is this, if what Paul said last week in Ephesians 6, we looked at Ephesians 6 last week, if Paul said what he said is indeed true, that there are actually principalities, cosmic evil forces in the heavenly places that, is, that are waging war against us as the people of God, friends, I think it's important that we talk about this. I think it's critical and vital that we talk about the devil and demonic activity. And so let me just say right off the bat here, the intention of this message is not to freak you out or it's not to scare you. In fact, I want to do the very opposite. I want to illuminate through scripture different facts, different information about the devil and demonic activity, and by God's grace, hopefully teach it in a way that is both informing and empowering to the life of every believer. That's the goal today. The goal isn't to to, 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 to try to see if there's a demon hiding behind every bush or, or behind every tree, that's not the intention. It's not to cause us to live in fear, but rather it's to illuminate the work of the enemy so that the enemy's work can be loosened in our lives. And so, in fact, the first piece of information I want to provide for you is very simple. And that is the devil is real and demons are real. Um, this is a foundational piece. If any of this, the rest of what I'm going to say is, is going to make sense, we need to start from this vantage point that the devil is real and demons are real. In other words, these are not made-up figments of our imagination, fairy tale stories that we tell ourselves. These are not urban legends or myths like demogorgons that have been handed down over time. Now, I will say the depiction of the devil has certainly evolved over time, and we'll talk about that briefly in just a moment, but the reality of the devil and demonic activity has never changed. In fact, Jesus talks extensively about the devil being real, an actual being. Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In John chapter 10, as, as we spent a, a good bit of our uh, fall semester talking about that passage, and in other places, Jesus makes these definitive statements regarding the devil. There's no way around it. Right? The apostles and the early church leaders encountered demonic activity on a regular basis. They were going around literally casting out demons. Paul, the founder of, of many of the New Testament churches that we have in our Bibles, regularly spoke about demonic powers. Again, last week we looked at Ephesians 6 where he spoke about these, these evil forces in the heavenly places. What is he talking about? He's talking about demonic powers. He's talking about the work of the devil. Churches over the course of human history and across the world even today not only speak about the devil but encounter demonic activity similar to that of the New Testament church. Friends, you would be hard-pressed to find evidence that speaks against the reality of the devil and demonic powers. Friends, the question isn't, do demons and does the devil exist? Are they real? There are really two questions that I think we need to answer for our time here this morning when it comes to the devil and demons. And if we have the answers to these questions... I think it would help us have a better framework for the supernatural realm and how God works and how the enemy works in tandem. 
And those two questions I want to look at here this morning are, number one, who is the devil and what are demons? And number two, how do they interact with us humans? How, who is the devil and what are demons? And how do they interact with us humans? Now, let me just say two things before I go on. Number one, I'm not going to be able to give a full comprehensive study on the devil and demonology in the next 20 minutes or so. It's impossible. And so this message is not to be a full comprehensive study on that. Uh, in fact, if you want to study this further, I'll provide some helpful resources later on in this message. And if, you've, if you have more resources that you're wanting to acquire, I'd be happy to give those to you at some point. But for today, I want to provide sort of a broad stroke, a broad overview uh, of, of the devil and demons. And, and I hope that will be helpful to you in some way. And number two, I'll say this before I, I jump into the first question. I'm going to throw a lot of scripture your way here this morning. Uh, we're not going to turn to all of them. In fact, we're going to turn to very few of them. If you want to and you want to test your Bible page-turning skills, you can do that. But we're going to just go ahead and display the, the text up here on the screen. Um, but as I, as I give you some of these scripture references, you may just want to jot down some those references in your notes or in a journal somewhere, and you can use that as a helpful resource moving forward in your study time. But uh, with that said, I want to look at the first question. The first question is, who is the devil and what are demons? A good way to answer this question might be to look at the devil's name, the devil's name. And so what's the devil's name? Is it, is it just devil? Right? Just devil? Like kind, of, kind of like Bono or Cher or Drake, right? Like is it just like this one name, one word name? Like so what is the devil's name? But more importantly, the question I want to answer is, how does the Bible refer to the devil? You see, the answer to that question isn't quite so simple because the Bible refers to the devil in a multitude of ways. Here, here are just a few to give you an idea. The Bible refers to the devil as Lucifer, Satan, the prince of darkness, Beelzebub, the Antichrist, father of lies, Moloch, accuser, liar, murderer, thief, a roaring lion, ruler of this world, ruler of this air, tempter, the wicked one, the dragon, the great dragon, the great fiery dragon. I mean, that's just to name a few, just to give you an idea. The Bible goes on and on and lists on and on these descriptions of the devil. And folks, that's just it. If you study scripture, you'll notice that the Bible actually never gives a proper name to this creature. The Bible never says, this is this being's name. Rather, these names are more descriptions than they are proper names. And so take, for instance, the word devil. The word devil. The word devil actually comes from the Greek word diabolos. The word diabolos, when translated, means slanderer or one who speaks falsely. I mean, that's what a slanderer is. It's one who speaks falsely about and to other people. That's why the Bible also refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. Now, this word diabolos not only shows up in places like Revelation, but, but early on in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 4, if you guys remember this, in fact, I, I preached on this text before, Jesus is out in the wilderness, right? In Matthew 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness, he's in prayer, he's fasting, and he's getting prepared for his earthly ministry before he launches out. And in Matthew 4, we find him being tempted by Diabolos, the devil. In that moment, the devil begins to feed all kinds of lies 
to Jesus with these false promises. In John chapter 8, we find the word diabolos come up in some clear and distinct ways. Jesus addresses a group of unbelieving Jews here, and he's got some harsh words for them. In John chapter 8, verse 44, listen to what it says here. He says, you are of your father, the diabolos. That's the word that's, that, that Jesus uses here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire." He was a murderer. Okay, there's another indication of who the devil is. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, Jesus is describing the devil using the very definition of the word diabolos. He's saying the devil is a slanderer, a liar, and an accuser. By the way, can I just say this about how the, how the devil slanders? The speaking falsely that the devil does happens in two ways. The first way is this. He will speak falsely to you about you. He will slander you to you. So in other words, he'll plant seeds of lies about you in your heart and mind to cause you to believe things about, about yourself that are just not true. You ever have those moments where you're like processing things and you're hearing yourself talk and the self-condemning, self-hatred voices that kind of reel in your head? That, that is the father of lies. That is a slanderer at work. That's the devil at work. So he will speak falsely to you about you. The second way he does this is the devil will speak falsely to you about God. He will slander God in your company to you. In other words, he'll try to convince you to view God in ways that are just antithetical to Scripture. It's just not what Scripture says about God. But the devil will slander God and cause you to believe things about God that are just not according to... And that's what the slanderer does. That's what the devil does. That's how he speaks falsely. Also, fun fact. Well, not so fun fact, really. Do you know that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses the word diabolos to specifically describe people in the church who gossip and slander. It's the same exact word for the devil. Let that one sink in for just a minute. It's the same word, diabolos, that Paul uses across the New Testament to describe people in the church who run their mouths. Am I hitting too close to home for some of us? See, this, this, is why, this is why we, the benefit of have, being part of a local church is I know stuff and I can speak into it, right? Like the, the, the word diabolos, in other words, here's, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When you speak about other people in a negative light, and I'm, I know none of us have done that, right? Like when we speak about other people in a negative light or, or we tear people down with our words behind closed doors, According to Paul, in that moment, you are no different than the devil himself. I don't like that part of the Bible, because <laughs> I know I've been guilty of that. And if we were all honest with ourselves, I know we're all guilty of that. That's the word he uses, slander, diablos, that's who the devil is. But the word diablos isn't the only word used to describe the devil. You know this term. Another commonly referenced name is Satan. 
Satan. The word Satan actually comes from the Hebrew word Satan, which when translated means adversary or enemy or one who resists. This is, this is someone who stands against. You'll see the word, for instance, Satan come up in places like Job chapter 1 where, where Satan appears before the Lord to oppose God's plans and right before he brings severe suffering against Job. We see Satan appear in Zechariah's vision as the one who stands against Joshua as he stands before the Lord. He is stand opposed to God's people. If you remember this, this interesting uh, conversational account uh, between Peter and Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, where, where Jesus is, is basically telling Peter, like, hey, listen, a couple of things, some bad stuff needs to happen to me in order for the hope of the world to come through, right? And, 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 G, and, and Peter gets in front of Jesus like, no, that, that, I, won't, I won't let that. That's not going to happen. And in that moment, do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He says, get thee behind me, what? What does he call him? Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus doesn't use the word diabolos there. The word that he uses is satan because Peter, in essence, was trying to get in the way of God's plans for humanity. In that moment, Peter was not working in cooperation with God, but rather he was standing in the way of God. And friends, that is what the word Satan implies. The word Satan implies that this figure, the devil, is primarily, first and foremost, an enemy of God. He stands opposed to God. He seeks to stand against anything that God stands for. So for instance, if God is for peace, Satan stirs dissension. If God is for love, Satan breeds hatred. If God is for freedom, Satan loves to keep people in bondage. If, if God is for unity, Satan loves to stir disunity within the body. You know one of the best ways to do that? Is to be the devil, diabolos, to slander, to gossip. One of the ways that, that Satan loves to do that is to stir disunity within the body. If God is for life, Satan is all about death. You see, friends, Everything that God is for, Satan stands against. He is truly the great adversary of God. But now the question that I'm, I'm left with is why? Why is Satan so opposed to God? Like, like when we have enemies in our lives, right, when we have adversaries, right, it's usually because someone did something to us or someone offended us or someone caused harm to our lives. Therefore, he or she is my enemy. But what caused the enemy to become the enemy? Why is Satan so opposed to God? The answer is quite simple. It's because Satan, from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of creation, believed in his core nature that he was actually better than God. He was actually better than God, even from the very beginning of time. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter three, we find the spirit of the devil embodied and represented by a snake, tempting Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. Now, if you know this story, you know this, you, 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 you could kind of follow the account, right? If you know the story, you know that the fruit itself was not the temptation. It wasn't like Adam and Eve woke up one day and were, they were like, you know, I'm really craving like a, an apple. 
You know, like, like a, I'm really craving a pomegranate. Whatever the fruit was, there a lot of scholars believe that it, it was probably closer to a pomegranate than an apple. Doesn't really matter. The, what matters is the thing that was tempting Adam and Eve was not the fruit itself. It was what, what, what was behind the fruit. The temptation for Adam and Eve was to be like God. That's at the core of the temptation, at the core of what caused the fall. It was the tempter's words, hey, if you eat this, you will be like God. You can be like God. And friends, is that not the great temptation that you and I face today? You and I, at the end of the day, we want to be our own God. We want to live for ourselves and by ourselves and dead. Mind your own freaking business, all right? Let me do me. Let me run things my way. I want to be my own God. By the way, that's why the first step to becoming a Christian is coming to a place of surrender. You cannot walk as a follower of Jesus if you do not come to this place of surrender first. The first step in becoming a Christian is surrendering to Christ and saying, Jesus, I give my life to you and I claim you and your lordship over my life, I claim you as the one in charge and the one in control of my life. I give my life to you. Becoming a Christian starts from this very basic point of acknowledging that he is God, I am not. That Jesus is king and I am not. That's, where, that's the place where a Christian comes to where their life is reborn in this place of surrender. But you see, Satan never got to that place. Satan never got to that place. In fact, if you fast forward from Genesis 3 all the way to Isaiah 14, we see a, we see a glimpse. You want to know what's in the heart of Satan? You want to see what's, what, what's in the heart of the evil one? Isaiah 14 paints a clear picture for us. Isaiah 14, picking up from verse 12, it says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. By the way, this is where we get the name Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer, in our mind, is, is you know, the, this evil monster. The, no, Lu, this is what, the, the name Lucifer actually is a Latin word that was later derived from this text, and it means morning star or day star, son of dawn. By the way, I was, um, I was at my kitchen table, um, and uh, my, my 10-year-old son, Jake, he says to me, hey, Dad, do you know what, do you know what Satan's first name was? I said, he doesn't have like a first name, last name kind of thing. You do know that, right, son? Like, no, no, no. He's like, no, no, no. Like what his name was before he became Satan. I said, oh, it was Lucifer. He said, no. Now, when, when a pastor's kid starts questioning their pastor on their Bible knowledge, you, you start feeling a little insecure. You're like, shoot, does this 10-year-old know more about the Bible than his, his old man? Like, I'm like, and I'm starting to sweat a little. I'm thinking to myself, ah, run through the archive. Is there another name? No, no, I think it's Lucifer. I said, son, I, I'm pretty sure it's Lucifer. He's like, no, dad, it's, it's two words. I'm like, I, I, you, got, you got me stumped. What is it? He said, morning star. I said, son, Lucifer means morning star. Schooled you, boy. You can't, don't try to school me. You know? Like, I'm like, well, like, you know, I dodged that bullet, right? Like, I was starting to get nervous, but that's what the name Lucifer means. Like, Lucifer means morning star or day star. And you're going to see why in just a minute. I'm going to come back to that name in just a moment. But listen to how the text continues. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, listen here. You said in your heart, Listen now what's in the heart of the evil one. I will ascend to heaven 
above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Sounds awfully like Genesis 3, doesn't it? I will make myself like the most high. Hear me, friends. Pride is at the heart of what drives Satan. Pride is at the core of what drives Satan. If you want to know what caused Lucifer to become Satan, it was precisely this, pride. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit, a proud spirit before the fall. I wonder, church, how much does pride drive us? How much does pride, this longing to be God of your life, drive us? Because it certainly drove the devil. I want to go back to the name Lucifer. This, this name uh, basically shows us how we often get the image of the devil misconstrued, right? Like, it, when I say Picture the devil, picture Lucifer. We often see the devil as this grotesque monster with horns and wings and fangs, right? Like our family just just watched Maleficent last night, right? Like, and we think like the, the devil is probably close to that, but like more evil, right? Like with blood dripping down his face from feasting on human flesh, right? Like oftentimes that's the picture that we have in our minds when it comes to the devil. But that's not how the Bible describes the devil. It's just not. Nowhere in Scripture does it allude to this picture that we have adopted in our minds of the devil. In fact, between Isaiah 14 and passages like Ezekiel 28 and 2 Corinthians 11, we know a couple of things about Satan. Number one, he was formerly one of God's most majestic angels. That's, that's what Scripture tells us. For those wondering what is the devil, the devil's not a person. The devil's not like a human being like, like some of us. He is a spiritual being, specifically an angel. And, and so that's what the morning star is referencing in, in Isaiah 14. Lucifer, Lucifer is not this like evil name. It was actually his angelic name pre-fall. Lucifer was a name that God gave to, to, to this creature pre-fall. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, it also says this of Satan. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Friends, Satan was originally an anointed angel of God. 2 Corinthians 11 describes Satan as an angel of light. So you see, Satan was never this terribly grotesque creature the way we often imagine. In fact, most of that depiction was adopted from, uh, from Dante's uh, literary work, Inferno, where he paints this terrible picture of the devil. And our culture has largely adopted that as sort of the narrative and the depiction of the devil. But that's not, actually not a scriptural, accurate point of view when it comes to who the devil is and what he's like. The devil was actually clothed with utmost splendor and beauty. He was created as the most, some, some scholars believe that he was the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most glorious angel of God. But because of the pride in his heart, he was cast out of heaven. We see that account not only in Isaiah 14, but also in the New Testament in Revelation 12. Listen to what it says. We'll put the text up here on the screen. Listen to this. And the great dragon, there's that other term, 
for the devil, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, okay, Diabolos and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Lucifer, an angel of God, becomes corrupted by the pride in his heart, leads essentially a cosmic revolution. This was before the very beginning of all creation. Leads a cosmic revolution and therefore was thrown down to earth. That's why scripture, when it, when it refers to the devil, he is the prince of the air. He is the ruler of this world. He, is, he has dominion over this earth. Right? And so... so we see that transition take place, but here in Revelation 12, you'll find something interesting, and it says this, his angels were thrown down with him. Now, hold on. Who are these other angels? Earlier in Revelation 12, we read that a third of the angelic host was cast down along with Lucifer. And so, who are these other angels that were cast down with him? Well, these angels are what we now know as demons, or fallen angels. And these demons, these fallen angels, are in service to Satan, and they work on Satan's behalf. And so what are demons? Very simply, demons are fallen angels who work evil and destruction in the world in the name of Satan. That's what demons are. Demons are fallen angels. They're not like, again, these hideous creatures. you got to remember, they are angelic beings. They started out as angelic beings, and led into this place of destruction, they now seek to bring works of evil and destruction in the world, in your life and in my life, in the name of Satan. But how? How do demons do this? How do demons work evil and destruction in the world? Now, conceptually, I think we can get it like, okay, demons, we already have a construct in our mind that they're evil beings. And so, yes, I get that they, they would potentially work evil and destruction in the world. But how do they do that? What does that even look like? Well, that's, this leads us to our second question. How do they interact with us humans? Now, listen, there are probably a dozen different things that I can point to to highlight the tactics and the work of the enemy. In fact, even when you look at the names that we covered, slanderer, right, liar, accuser, uh, enemy, adversary of God, I think we can pretty much gather how they interact with us as humans. But because of time, I just want to highlight just three of them real quickly here, and then we'll wrap things up. As I go through these three tactics of the enemy, uh, I want to mention just one thing about this. I think for many of us, when we think of demonic interaction with humans, we sort of hone in on demon possession, right? Like, like we think that the extent of the devil interacting and de demons interacting with humans is, is with, with demon possession. And, and again, when we think of demon possession, we often see images in our minds of like head spinning, right? Like and, and, and bodies convulsing, eyeballs rolling back and foaming at the mouth, maybe projectile vomiting, like, and, and like speaking in altered voices. Again, like stuff that Hollywood mostly portrays for us. But let me just say this. Let me just put this out there. Demonic activity can certainly manifest physically. It, it can there, there could be physical manifestations and physical representations of demonic presence. 
And so, for instance, in the Gospels, you see this quite often, people being healed of physical ailments because of demonic oppression. Uh, For example, in Luke chapter 13, there was a woman who was bent over for 18 years. She couldn't stand up. She couldn't straighten her body. And Jesus casts out a demon. Jesus says, Satan has bound this woman for this long. And he heals her of this ailment, and she straightens up her body. And so we see demonic activity having an effect on people's physical conditions. And, And there are other accounts in the Gospels where demons manifest their activity in very physical ways. But I want you to know that most of the tactics of the enemy doesn't happen to us physically. Sometimes it may. Sometimes you might be sick because of a spiritual attack. And sometimes it might just be because you're a Penn State student, <laughs> because you caught the Penn State plague. That, that's, that's all there is. And by the way, there's a whole teaching I love to do on the process of discernment, okay? Because what I don't want is for us to walk out of here again and be like, well, hey, you know, I got I to gotta, I gotta be on guard for, for the devil. The devil's everywhere. Like, if I get sick... Forget, forget Sudafed, forget NyQuil, like, I, I, like this is a demonic attack. Oh, maybe, maybe not. There's a process of discernment that's required there. But can I just say this? While physical attacks might take place, almost always the enemy will attack your mind and your heart first. The enemy will almost always attack our hearts and our minds first. Spiritual-natured attack. So can I just expose three of those tactics? I'm going to go through these real quickly, and, and, and um, if you have more questions on this, I'd love to dialogue with you because I know after this message, you might, have, you might be walking out with more questions than answers, and that's okay. We can process together as a church. But I want to point out three tactics of the enemy and his demonic forces that often interact with us humans. The first one is this. He loves to use the tactic of deception. We already established this, that the devil is a liar. He is the father of lies. And so his core nature leads him to acts of deception, to deception. Do you know that one of his key areas of deception is in our own disbelief of his existence and his work? One of the ways that the enemy loves to deceive us is to deceive us and convince us that he doesn't exist. Friends, if the enemy of your soul can convince you that he doesn't exist, he's already won. He's already won half the battle. If you're convinced in your mind that he doesn't even exist and he doesn't work and interact with us on this realm. That's why we spent a whole Sunday last week talking about you need to acquire a supernatural worldview. Because if we don't, your natural inclination and my natural inclination will be to relegate the devil and his demons as fairy tale stories of old. Oh, come on. Those don't exist. The devil doesn't exist. He's not a thing. Deception. That is the work of the enemy causing us to believe things about the supernatural that just are not theirs. And so I I hope by now you're seeing that the devil is very much real. And as 1 Peter 5 tells us, he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking for someone to devour. And the way he devours us is using deception. A second tactic is actually a form of deception, but more specifically, temptation. He uses deception to deceive us. And and, and another branch of deception is the tactic of temptation. 
Friends, if the enemy of your soul is also the enemy of God, the enemy will do everything in his power to prevent you from living for God. The enemy will do everything. If, if, if he is truly Satan, the adversary of God, he will do everything in his power to keep you from living a holy, Jesus-centered, gospel-centered life. He will do everything. Remember, right? Like, if God's primary work in us is to make us more like Jesus, the enemy will do all that he can to prevent that from happening. So, if he can get you to sin, oh, he's going to work night and day to try to get you to sin. If he, can, if he can get you to live as if God did not exist, he's going to do everything he can to try to convince you that God does not exist. So, live however the freak you want. Because at the end of the day, God's not real, so go ahead, just do you. Or at least he's going to tempt you to try to live like a functional atheist. Maybe you might believe in your head, oh, God is real, yeah, I believe in God, but he's going to tempt you to live like a functional atheist, as if God did not exist. Can I just say this one extra piece on temptation? Um, if you haven't read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I would highly recommend this book. This is it's, it's a fascinating book. Um, if you want to gain a better understanding of demonic activity and how demons work, this book isn't like a, uh, like a, a, a principles-based book that's not going to teach you Bible doctrine. It's actually a story, a story that C.S. Lewis crafts to highlight the work of the demonic realm. And it's, again, it's fascinating, and, and I would highly recommend it. In fact, while I'm on the resources, let me just offer two more to you. Uh, one is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and you can order that on Amazon. Another book is called The Bondage Breaker by Dr. Neil T. Anderson. And uh, this is far more practical. This is more principle-driven, and, and he uses scripture to kind of highlight places of, of where we can find freedom. Um, and, and so The Bondage Breaker is real practical ministry-related book. Uh, his, his previous book, Victory Over Darkness, is another phenomenal book, a resource on spiritual warfare and engaging in the, the, the supernatural realm of uh, demonic forces. And so um, uh, those are more books. I've got other articles and places and smaller pamphlets. If you don't have time for a book, I can, I can refer those to you at a, certain, at a later point. But in the book Screwtape Letters, let me just highlight this, and then I'll move to the third and final tactic. In the book Screwtape Letters, there, Lewis talks about how the devil tempts us. Now, this is important. The devil will rarely ever tempt us in big, large, showy ways. He, he won't tempt us in ways that like, with like these significant, life-shattering temptations that causes your life to just crumble in an instant. Those are, the, those are not the, the kinds of temptations that the devil will, will bring our way. Why? Because most often than not, more often than not, like as human beings, when we are tempted in big ways and when we fall and come crashing down in big ways, oftentimes that serves as a wake-up call. It jars our spirit, it jars our conscience, and it jars us in a way that causes us to wake up and move in the opposite direction. And it leads us most of the time, and guys, you know this, like if you've ever fallen morally or spiritually in a significant way, and you have a come to Jesus moment, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, holy crap, I really screwed this one up. And what do you do? You're jarred out of that place, and you come to Jesus. You see, the devil doesn't want that. And so the devil will not tempt you in these big, alarming, significant ways. Rather, the devil will tempt you in small 
seemingly insignificant ways where you compromise a little bit here, where you compromise a little bit there, and you say things like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. That's not that big a deal. That's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal until it becomes a big deal. You see, the tactic of the enemy is to cause you to sin in small ways, tempt you in small ways. That way, he can keep you living in sin far longer. See, the enemy will never come in with a blowhorn like a freight train being like, I'm coming, right? Like, that, that's not how the enemy works. The enemy works in subtlety through the back door, through little voices and little thoughts that say to yourself, oh, that's probably not that big of a deal. All of a sudden, you start finding your life moving in the opposite direction of the cross. And it's at that point you probably need to be a little worried. It's probably at that point where you step back and you're like, holy crap, how did I even get here? That's one of the tactics of the enemy. He tempts us in these small, seemingly insignificant ways. That's why Jesus, I love one of the core prayers he teaches us. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the tempter. That's what Jesus is saying. So what are, what are the tactics of the enemy? It's, it's uh, deception, it's temptation, and then let me give you this last one, and then we'll wrap up. The enemy of our soul loves to use the tactic of accusation. Revelation 12, we already touched on this. The enemy of our soul is also the accuser of our soul. You want to know how he does this? I know this is kind of a weird concept to even think about, like how, how, does, how does the enemy accuse us? If you can imagine, just for a minute, a court scene, just in your mind, imagine a court scene and place yourself in that story, specifically in the hot seat. You're the one being prosecuted against. You're the defendant, right? You're the, the crime has been done and you're sitting in the hot seat. And the prosecutor is the devil. The prosecutor, the devil, stands up and he's standing in front of the judge and the jury and he's got his finger pointed at you and he's declaring you as completely, entirely, utterly guilty. You want to know the crazy thing? You actually agree with him. The crazy thing is, somewhere inside, as he's accusing you, you inside internally know, dang it, it's true. You see, when the, de when the enemy points his finger and begins to accuse you, he begins to point out, all the wrongdoings of your life. He begins to roll out your tattered history of all the ways that you have messed up and all the mistakes and regrets of your past, and he begins to broadcast all of that. He brings out, you know, the, 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 the TV, and he puts in the VCR or whatever, the DVD, and he plays, he plays your highlight reel of all the sins, of all the nasty things that you have done, not just recently, but the course of your entire life. He puts it on display. He, he tells the judge and the jury, look at all of these ways that this person has so badly messed up. They're screwed up. I mean, they are literally hopeless. And, this, and, and, and the, the prosecutor, the devil, as he's pointing out all these things, again, deep down inside, you're beginning to sweat a little bit because you're like, shoot, I did do that. That is inside my heart. That evil, yeah. Yeah. If I were dead honest with myself, 
Yeah, those are things that are deep down in my soul somewhere. I'm not, I don't want that, but I know the things that he's accusing me of, they're there. And the devil, as he's pointing his finger at you, turns to the judge, turns to the jury, and says, this guy, this girl, they don't deserve a second chance at life. Forget prison. They deserve the death penalty. They deserve to die for this. For all the wrongs that they have done, they deserve to die. And while all of this accusation is going on, the back door opens up, and in walks Jesus. And Jesus steps onto the scene, and he takes a stand in between you and the devil's finger of accusation. And Jesus, in that moment, looks the devil in the eye, and he says, hey, I know you're actually right about everything you're saying. But the thing is, my cross has taken care of all of that. My sacrifice, which was once and done, has taken care of all of that. Then he moves out, and he goes up to the judge, and the judge shows his nail-pierced hands. And the judge takes one look at Jesus, and then he takes a look at you, and he utters those inevitable words, I claim you not guilty. Listen to this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? That's what the devil loves to do. Pointing that finger, condemning you, accusing you. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, get this, who indeed is interceding for us. So get that picture. Jesus stands in between you and the finger of accusation of the devil, and Jesus is interceding on our behalf before the judge, before God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor any demonic powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, can you say amen to that? That is our reality. The reality, folks, is this. While the enemy deceives us, while the enemy tempts us, and when we fall, we will fall, church. I hope your history indicates that we're not impervious to sin. We will fall into sin in that moment when the enemy comes and starts accusing us. You're not worthy of God's love. You're not worthy of God's acceptance. You don't belong in the church. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You don't belong here. Romans 8 tells us that we no longer stand accused, but rather we stand acquitted. We no longer stand as accused people, but because of Jesus and what he has done for us, we stand as acquitted people, exonerated, freed. Though we are guilty, Jesus and his work claims us as righteous. Sometimes I don't get that. 
And, 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 I, and I know for some of us, maybe, maybe not all of us, we hear that and it goes one ear and out the other. Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, I've been there before. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God opens our ears to receive the magnitude and the weight of what Jesus has done for us. Because you want to know what dismantles. Remember the question that I posed earlier? How do we defeat Demogorgons? How do we defeat the devil? Right? Jesus has already disarmed the powers of the enemy. That's why this is so important. This is why Romans 8 is so important. Because without Jesus, we are still in bondage to the evil one. We still stand under the accusations of the evil one. But because of Jesus and what he has done, we no longer stand accused. We are people who are acquitted by the everlasting, unending love of God.